We are ready now to continue our studies in the book of Romans, and we are in chapter 12. I said to us in the last class that Romans chapter 12 is a transition. It is a turning point in the book of Romans. Let me back up and explain. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome, and he goes into some detail in the opening chapters about justification by faith in Christ. He clears up what some of his readers may have been confused about, and all through the first 11 chapters, it is instruction about God offering salvation by the activity of faith in Christ. Now, when you read that kind of material, you are informed, questions are answered, clarity is provided. But there comes a time when you need what might be called a therefore. What do I need to do about all of this? And that's where we are in Romans chapter 12. I'm continuing now at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I want to say just here, grace is everywhere in the book of Romans. Of course, we are saved by grace. The Jews and Gentiles could be united in one body by their response to the grace of God. Grace is everywhere in this book. God's grace that expressed itself supremely in the death of Christ. One strong implication of God's grace is we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think because we are recipients of grace. We are not self-made, powers of our own strength and wisdom, which we achieved alone. No, instead of that kind of boastful perspective, we need to embrace sober judgment and humility, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God's grace, what God has assigned, that should be the basis of our view of ourselves. The humility we're going to read about here that each of us ought to have is founded on the fact that we are all recipients of God's grace. By His grace, we are what we are as Christians. So, the boastful pride so characteristic of the world around us cannot be within us. Let me ask you, how long has pride been a problem? I hear some of you saying since Eve and Adam. Do you think there was a time after Adam and Eve when pride just disappeared from the human race? Of course not. Pride was a major issue all through the dispensations and periods of time in the judgment of the prophets. Jesus identified pride during his earthly ministry. It is a problem in the human race. It is present in our time today, hopefully not in any of us. If grace enables us to be what we are in Christ, any claim of pride 
any conduct of arrogance, any high self-regard and self-exaltation is completely out of place. Now the phrase, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I have an utterly simple explanation. Measure is a rule. Our self-image, our judgment needs to be ruled by our faith which was given by God. For by the grace given to me, Paul said, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The big idea here is humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will lift you up. James 4, verse 10. I take you now to verses 4 through 8. 4 through 8 in Romans 12. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. As Christians, we are all members of, and we are spiritually located in one body, the body of Christ. Imagery back in chapter 11. It was one tree. The imagery here is one body, and every person who has obeyed the gospel is a member of this one body. Those connected to Christ are connected to each other. Fellowship with God through Christ results in fellowship with others who share in that relationship. However, the point here is while we are united, we are not identical. We are not clones. We are different. We have different personalities, different backgrounds, and different abilities, different levels of growth. This is so important. We're not going to rush through it. There are four things I want to say from this text. Those who serve in public must never be considered better than those who serve in more private ways. Song leaders, announcers, scripture readers, preachers, men who pray, they are up front before an audience. While we appreciate men who serve, those functions are not the only areas of service. There are women who send cards and pray and make calls and prepare and deliver food and clean buildings and help men do the things men do. Women who are relatively unseen in what they do. There are men who may not serve in public ways, but in unseen ways, do things that encourage and help and serve the Lord's cause. There are parents who bring their children to the building, and their children are in their arms and moving in every which direction. Those parents apply great energy 
form good habits, those children. I could go on, but my point is made. Those who serve in public must never be considered better than those who serve in more private ways. Number two, having different talents or gifts is to be desired. There are many different kinds of function and work necessary in the local church and in the Lord's work in general. If we do not have all the same abilities, that is the negative. We need a wide range of gifts, varied talents. Number three, whatever we are able to do, we ought to do it cheerfully and zealously, even though it's not the same what somebody else does. It may seem to you that what you're able to do is just really simple and almost unseen. Do what you're able to do and do it with all your might, cheerfully, zealously, everybody acting with cheer and kindness and zeal, really encourages members of the local church and pleases God. Number four, it's never right to compare and or demean. One of the ugliest and most destructive habits is to compare preachers and to have extended discussions or gossip about how you like one but you don't like the other when really both are preaching the truth to the best of their ability from a full heart. No two preachers have exactly the same personality or style. But if a man is sincere, delivering the truth with clarity and passion, that he is not like another fellow you like better, so what? It is distracting, immature, and I remind us, this is the Lord's kingdom. It's not high school. Romans 12, 3 through 8. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. By the way, a good reference passage here would be 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 7. Look further now, 9 through 13. 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show 
hospitality. I'll be back in just a moment, and we'll study these verses. Let love be genuine. New King James, let love be without hypocrisy. Primary, in the mindset of the Christian, there must be love, but this love must be genuine. Let love be without hypocrisy, genuine, real. Think about how disappointed and disgusted you were if you discovered someone's actions of affection were only pretended, not genuine. Has this ever happened to you? Someone gives you attention and praise and warmth, and you conclude that they really care about you, only to discover later it was all a pretense. They didn't really care about you. There was something they wanted. It wasn't love. It was hypocrisy. Well, if we see that as disappointing and disgusting, think about God. The difference is God doesn't have to wait later to find out. We are completely transparent to Him. He can see through the outward actions right down to the inner motive. If our love is pretended, if our love is hypocritical, God knows it immediately. He is offended. Let love be without Apocrypha, genuine, sincere. Each of us, based on this, ought to do an internal check to make certain the love described in God's Word is what we have, what we are developing with the deepest kind of sincerity and integrity. It must be a love for others that is based on our love for God, love that follows the example of Christ, love that gives and sacrifices, takes no account of publicity or reward. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. There is a strict and stern objection we must have toward all that is evil. Here's how simple this can be. If God disapproves, I must disapprove. If God considers something to be wrong, I should. If God hates it, I should hate it. If God will not tolerate it, I should not tolerate it. Abhor what is evil. The law of God, someone said, is to hate everything he hates. Let's do this. If you would keep your place in Romans 12, turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs 6. 16 through 19. You remember this? There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person stirs up conflict in the community. Now, Everything in this list is offensive to God, so it should be offensive to me, to you. And that's the essence of this statement by Paul, abhor what is evil. 
Now, here's what we have to face. Through all our media, video technology, the entertainment industry, and the advertising industry, we are exposed to evil in very bold and constant ways. Satan, if we let him, can wear away at our opposition to sin. You see it all the time. You become so familiar with it. If you're not disciplined and devout, your abhorrence to evil can gradually diminish. I read the other day this phrase, lulled into a state of general tolerance. Hear that? Lulled into a general state of tolerance. That's the danger to us, to our children, to our grandchildren. We need to be firm in our opposition to everything God is supposed to abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. I've mentioned two or three times in the writings of Paul, the negative is combined with the positive. Don't do this, but do this. So abhor what is evil is the negative. Cling to what is good is the corresponding positive. Just as we hate what is wrong, we ought to love what is right. One develops alongside the other. The more you love what is right and cling to it, the more you hate what is wrong. Stay away from it. The more you hate what is wrong, the more you love what is right. So the negative is connected with the positive, and this should be the state of mind of every believer. An affectionate, positive relationship with everything that is godly, militant, distant relationship toward everything that is ungodly. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Verse 10 will come into place to the extent we take verse 9 seriously. I mean, if we understand what Paul is teaching us in verse 9, the result will be as described in verse 10, kind affection, brotherly love. Let's pause for a moment on this phrase, in honor giving preference to one another. In our society, there is a strong will to give preference to ourselves, our agendas, put ourselves above others. This says, as a product of sincere love, give preference to one another. Consider others better than yourselves. That's the idea. It's over in Philippians 2 and verse 3. I do not favor the English Standard Version translation, outdo one another. It sounds too competitive. I think the idea is to be diligent to show honor, even if your perception is you're not being honored. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. This is what may be called in literary analysis a triplet, which simply means three things are joined together. Do not be slothful means we apply ourselves energetically, diligently. Fervent in spirit means on fire, having to do with effort. Serving the Lord means the direction of all of this and what we agreed to do when we died. This is a wake-up call. We ought to read a passage like this and pray about it. 
raise ourselves out of any lethargy. Right. Verse 12 is another combination of three, a triplet. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. If you're down, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. Many Christians will admit and confess their difficulty in maintaining a regular, healthy life of prayer. That may explain why there are struggles in doing some of the things taught in this passage. Effective and godly living requires consistent contact with God through Jesus Christ. One more thing. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is another one of those places in the passage where it can be said, if you're doing the first part of this, then this part will be the result. If you have sincere love and you abhor what is evil and you're clinging to what is good and praying steadfastly, you will be strongly inclined to help your brethren with their needs and open to welcome them and give them shelter when necessary. This verse is about the individual believer's affection for other believers, and from that affection, deeds and sacrifice that serve to meet the needs of the saints. Sharing, sacrifice, helping, all of that will result when we become seriously engaged in the injunctions of the apostle in this rich paragraph that's so practical should provoke every one of us good thoughts and careful self-examination. Thank you for listening.